Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Moroni 7 through 9, but we're going to do a little bit different. We're going to start with 9 first. 9 is the gruesome tale of why the Nephites really ought to be destroyed. If you've been puzzled as to why the Nephites would be destroyed, read Moroni chapter 9. So we're just going to get this out of the way. Yeah, right. so it, it, it's, it's dark, it's gruesome, it tells you not only what the Lamanites are doing, but even worse than that, what the Nephites are doing. And the summary to me is in verse 11, O oh, my beloved son, this is Mormon writing to Moroni, O oh, my beloved son, how can a people like this that are without civilization? That's a, probably the best description I've ever found, is they have lost their civilization, Therefore, the Lord just says, I, I, they have to be destroyed. Yeah, and I would just read verse 18, the depravity of my people, they're without order. And then later, verse 20 in the middle, they're without principle and they're past feeling. There's a couple of chapters in the Torah, blessing and cursing chapters that I'll relate in the show notes. But in them, there's a list of cursings, and that list is being fulfilled right here. So without getting into any more detail than that, just know that they're without order, and they don't have civilization. And so let's get to Moroni 7. Yeah, Moroni 7 is such a gem, because he starts off, verse 1, I, Moroni, write a few of the words of my father, which he spake concerning faith, hope, and charity. Now, we've talked a bit about faith. You know, when we did Ether chapter 12, we spoke a lot about faith, and I shared C.S. Lewis's definition of faith, and that was that Faith is the art of holding on to something you know to be true in spite of your fears or your imaginations or your emotions. It's that act of holding on in the darkness. And so what fascinates me is starting in verse 21 when Mormon says, faith, now I come to that faith of which I would speak. Notice how, how many of these have a hold on to imagery. So verse 21, I'm coming to that faith I will tell you by, whereby ye may lay hold on every good thing. So it's that whole idea of holding on. Um, verse 25, by faith they did lay hold upon every good thing. I would recommend you go back to the Ether 12 podcast and listen to our comments about faith. It's taught beautifully here, but the focus here seems to be on hope and charity. So Mike, is there anything else you want to say about faith? So, yeah, a little bit. I mean, laying hold, taking hold of it, that's the iron rod. Well, even in verse 28, he says, cleave. They who have faith in him will cleave unto every good thing. And then verse 26, whatsoever thing ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is good, in faith believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be done unto you. It's that hold on to what you know is true. Hold on to the promises. Notice verse 20 and 21 where it says to lay hold on every good thing. The word for thing is the same word in Hebrew for word, which is coming out of the Holy of Holies. And so by laying hold on every good thing, and by the way, these are being used interchangeably. So we have that in 20, we have that in 21, laying hold on every good thing. Verse 24, there were diverse ways that he did manifest things 
unto the children of men which were good, and all things which are good cometh of Christ. If you read that word things as words, now we're seeing, okay, how are God's words being manifest? And so to me, verse 20, and as it's tied into faith, I have a laundry list of ways that these words have been manifest. Right out of the gate in First Nephi chapter 1, Lehi sees God on his throne, which is the devere, where, where the words come out. So we have prophets, and then you have missionaries, and you have the written word, the text. And so Moroni is going to put this in the ground, and these things or these words are going to be manifest. And notice these things, verse 22, are come because God sent angels. He sent angels to minister to the children of men to make manifest concerning the coming of Christ, and in Christ there should come every good thing or word. And so just just have some fun with that. If you read Moroni 7, take the word thing and just in your scriptures write words out there, and then the words are coming from God to prophets, to us, and we lay hold on them and then overlay that with the image of the iron rod. And so once we add all these images together, we kind of take Moroni 7 and we take 1 Nephi 8 and 11, and we, we see this as an ascent to coming back to God. We can see this as a ritual right? The threefold descent coming back into God. But we can also see this through the visionary perspective of Nephi. And the, the manifestation of faith in the ancient world was the hand clasp, right? So when Peter grabs Jesus's hand and Jesus pulls him out of the ocean, that is pistis or that is faith. But really, like you said, this whole emphasis is we're shifting into hope and charity. Yeah. It builds up. I remember when I was a child, I used to think that, well, hope should come first. First, you hope the church is true, and then you have a little bit more solid faith in the church. But that is not the hope the Scriptures are leading us to. It's not, I hope the church is true. In English, we use that word differently than is intended in the Scriptures. The hope intended in the Scriptures is a very specific hope. So starting in verse 40, he says, I want to speak unto you concerning hope. And then verse 41, what is it that ye shall hope for? Now notice in the next sentence, we often focus on you hope in Christ. But I'm going to see if we can just change the emphasis onto one word and see if that changes your definition of hope. Mormon says, what is it that you shall hope for? Verse 41, behold, I see unto you, that ye shall hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of resurrection to be raised unto life eternal. In other words, here's my take on that. Faith says, I believe Jesus has power to save. Hope says, I believe Jesus will save me. That's a very different thing. Faith says, I believe God answers prayers. Hope says, I believe God will answer my prayers. Faith says, I believe in miracles. Look back at verse 37. It is by faith that miracles are wrought. Faith says, I believe in miracles. But hope says, I know that God will do miracles in my life. It's beautifully taught in Alma, chapter 13, verse 29. Notice the emphasis here. Having faith on the Lord, having hope that ye shall receive eternal life. In other words, someone who has faith and doesn't have hope, which I would suggest this church is filled with, 
If you have faith and you don't have hope, you believe that the church is true, you believe in miracles, you believe that God answers. It's just that you don't ever see them happening to you. My goody-goody neighbor, my bishop, my friend, God will hear you, but he won't hear me. See, that's a lack of hope. I lack hope because I don't think that the gospel applies to me. I know that God loves. I know that Jesus came to save. I just don't think he came to save me. You lack hope when you say that. You don't lack faith. So let me give you a couple of examples of people who had faith, even a limited amount, but didn't have hope. Let me take you back to Laman and Lemuel. Chapter 15 of 1 Nephi. They begin to ask Nephi all these questions about dad's dream, about the tree of life. And Nephi says in verse 8, have you inquired of the Lord? Now listen to their answer. Verse 9, they said unto me, we have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known. Now if I end the sentence there, what do they lack? If they had said, we have not, basically inquired of the Lord, we have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known, period. Now what do they lack? They lack faith. God doesn't speak to human beings. But they added two words. We have not, for the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Now why were they asking Nephi? Because God will speak to my goody-goody brother Nephi. But he won't speak to me. That's someone who has faith and no hope. Let me give you another example. Turn to Alma chapter 33. Speaking of those in Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness during the 40-year period, and the Lord sent fiery flying serpents among them, and they bit the people. And all they had to do was look, and they were healed. Now look at the very end of verse 19, Alma 33, 19. How could anyone lack faith given what it says at the very end of 19? If the Israelites were like the Latter-day Saints, then the word spread quickly that there was a miracle in camp, and that pretty soon there were many miracles in camp. And so I know everyone knew that the thing worked. Many did look and live. So explain to me verse 20. The way I'm about to read it shows a lack of faith, but then I'm going to reread it and show you a lack of hope. Verse 20, but few understood the meaning of these things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look. They would not look to Christ. Therefore, they perished. Now, the reason they would not look is because they did not believe it would heal them. Now, when I say it that way and I emphasize the word heal, what do they lack? The reason they wouldn't look is because they didn't believe it would heal them. They lack faith. But let me read it again, and let me put, I know there's someone you love that this sentence describes. See them as not necessarily lacking faith, but lacking hope. The reason many Latter-day Saints do not look is because they do not believe that it will heal them. Do you see the difference? Hope is to believe that God will heal me, that this whole system, this whole church, this whole thing applies to me. All of the promises 
apply to sinful, imperfect, I've made so many mistakes in my life, me. But that's hope. I think that's why the gospel is participatory. We have to participate. It's one thing to believe that God answers prayers. It's another thing to actually do it. And I really think that's an important reason why the Lord has said, hey, let's get as many of you out on missions as we can. If we get our young people out on missions and they experience this, they're swimming in hope. They're living it and they're experiencing it and it's applicable. And so faith is trust, but hope to me is almost this participatory experience, right? Great description. Anyway, just a thought there. So let me read one of the saddest verses in the Book of Mormon. If you go back to Moroni, but go to chapter 10 in verse 22. Think of the friends that you have, maybe even you yourself. Think of that, the people in this church who have faith, who believe that God does miracles. They just don't think they'll ever have miracles done to them, that God answers prayers. He just doesn't answer theirs. Listen to this verse. Ready? Here's the danger. Moroni 10, 22. If you have no hope, you must needs be in despair. And I wonder how many people in the church are in despair because they don't have hope. And it is, it is the Savior's plea that we have hope. You can just feel Mormon saying, you need to have hope. What is it that you shall hope for? Back in chapter 7, I say unto you that you, you, individual you, imperfect you, with all the warts that you have, you shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal. And this is because of your faith in him, according to the promise. Verse 42, if a man have faith, he needs to have hope. Without faith, you can't have hope, but you must have hope. Hope is what gets us up in the morning. Hope is why we go to church. Hope is why we do what we do, because I believe it works for me. And those of you who are listening that are struggling with your own hope, may I testify that Jesus, let me take you back to verse 27. He paid an infinite penalty. He paid an infinite debt to justice. So what did he buy with it? One of the greatest phrases in all of Scripture. My beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven and hath sat down on the right hand of the Father. Now listen to this phrase. To claim of the Father his rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of man. I love that phrase. Perhaps one of the greatest phrases in the Book of Mormon that Jesus claimed his rights of mercy, his rights of mercy, which he hath upon the children of men. He bought the rights to be merciful unto you. Have hope in that atonement. Have hope in his desires to save even you, not just everyone else, but you. If faith is a choice we make, then so is hope. Hope must be it, it just must be, a cho I choose to have hope. I choose to believe that it applies to me personally. You know, Bryce is certainly not a podcast on mental illness, and I'm by no means a licensed therapist. You read that verse, Moroni 10, where if I don't have hope, 
I must be in despair. And I'm a big proponent of, okay, what can I do? You know, I can sit and I can be acted upon and be a victim. And I can say, well, I have no control over this. Or I can get up in the morning and say, okay, what am I going to do about it? And to me, these are some of the things that I do. I try to get in the Book of Mormon every day. I try. I'm not perfect. I try to put as much light into my life as I can. I try to put stuff in my body that's not going to make, like, for example, we just came off Thanksgiving. Now, I don't know about you, but I had a little bit of extra pie. I did not feel so good Friday morning. And I thought if I did this every day, in other words, what am I putting in my life, my associations? How do I treat people? I'm certainly not perfect, but I really see this as participatory, meaning in the gospel ideal, everybody needs a friend. We're back to President Hinckley, right? Everyone needs a friend. And they need something that they can do, that they can participate, because this is the hope that is in us. And this- that's when we see, I, I have a place in this gospel. If I have something significant to do in my ward, then I have a place in this ward. And I think people just need to understand that there is a place in the Savior's heart for you. Yeah. I love the third verse of hymn number 187, God loved us so he sent his son that says, O love effulgent, love divine, what debt of gratitude is mine, that in his offering I have part and hold a place within his heart. It's that knowledge, it's that belief that I hold a place in his heart. Because if I hold a place in my ward, if I, have a, if I hold a place in your heart, then it's easier for me to believe that I hold a place in his heart. We ha- when we talk about participating in the gospel, you have to allow yourself to participate in the atonement. You have to allow yourself, your weaknesses. You have to say, look, Jesus came to save imperfect people, and that includes me. I have to allow myself in that discussion that Jesus came to save me not just everyone else, but me. Paul said that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And I've said that to myself so many times. It is an act of hope to say, I have a place in his heart that I qualify with all my imperfections. I qualify for his love, and he does desire to save me, and he owns the rights to save me. Have hope. Choose to have hope. Choose to see that you have a part of his heart. So Bryce, um, Moroni 7 has this phrase in verse 28 where it says that Jesus answered the ends of the law. I think we talked about it when we referenced it in another section. Do you want to just briefly just talk about that just for a second? Way back when we did Second Nephi chapter 2 and Lehi's description of the plan of salvation, he uses that phrase that Jesus had to offer himself an offering for sin to answer the ends of the law. And that's one of the best descriptions of what the atonement actually accomplished. What did Jesus do? He answered the ends of the law. Now, long story short, that was our our podcast with 2 Nephi chapter 2, if you want to go back and listen. But he answered the law by obeying everything that the law required of him. He answered the requests of the law. But then he answers the law by being punished as if he broke every aspect of the law. In other words, he, 
He lived up to the requirements, the punishments of the law. He was punished as if he broke every aspect of the law, the ends of the law, which we then turn to Mosiah chapter 2. King Benjamin mentions in verse 38, one of the things that the law requires is a lively sense of our own guilt. So if Jesus answered the ends of the law, he must have taken guilt and pain of every kind to an infinite level. He answered the ends of the law. And now we come to Moroni 7 verse 27. By answering the ends of the law, he claims his rights of mercy, which he has upon the children of men. That's where your hope comes from that he claimed an infinite right to mercy because he paid an infinite penalty. He claims an infinite right of mercy. He can save anyone and everyone. It doesn't mean he will because he puts some conditions out there that they have to choose. They're his conditions. He can do that. But he can. He can save you. In a really simple analogy, it's like he owns the building and whether I'm admitted or not is based on his conditions because he owns it. He purchased it. I don't owe a debt to justice anymore. I don't. Uh, justice doesn't control where I go. Jesus controls where I go. It, he paid the debt to justice. And in so doing, he can do things like call a prophet and say, this is my representative and what he says goes. And so this is a distinction that a lot of people don't really understand, this idea of a prophet representing the Lord. And he's given the, the prophet the keys and says... I give unto you, section 107, An imperfect mortal man is given God's authority because that's that's the right that Jesus has. He bought that right to extend that authority to anyone he sees fair. So So have hope. Have hope. You should have hope because you have a place in his heart and he has claimed the rights of mercy to save you no matter how many mistakes you've made. There are no limits to the atonement. There are only your limits to repentance and your hope and your faith. So let it not be your lack of faith and hope that limits how much atonement you get to enjoy, because the atonement is infinite. This will probably be the last time I do this with the Book of Mormon, Bryce, but take a look at this, the beginning of Moroni 7. I mean, we're at the end, so we're not going to see a lot more of this, but look in verse 3. He says, I would speak unto you that are of the church, but then he he kind of narrows his focus. He says, that are the peaceable followers of Christ that have obtained a sufficient hope which ye can enter into the rest of the Lord. I think he's talking about sacred stuff. I think he's talking about the peaceable followers that could represent those that are on the way. The best interpretation of this is, like the shalems, the peaceful ones, those that have been initiated. The, the Greek is the teleoi, the ones that have been, they've gone the distance, they've been perfected from a ritual perspective. Now, I certainly don't know, but we begin with perhaps an invitation where he's speaking to those that are been endowed into the mysteries, as it were, in verse 3. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at the very last verse. We're going to pray to the Father with all the energy of heart that we may be filled with this love, this charity, which he has bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, 
for we shall see him as he is. This is right, we're back to Ether 12. The, Moroni does it in Ether 12, but remember, these are Mormon's words. So I think what we have is we have two witnesses, Mormon and Moroni, that are saying, you're going to see him, and you're going to be purified even as he is pure. So I'm going to throw this at you, just a couple thoughts. The beginning of the chapter, we're talking about verse 3, the peaceable followers, and then you get verse 4, they're in the peaceable walk, the walk of the shalems, the initiated ones, the ones that have, they're ritually coming to God. So what do we get in verse 6? We have all these verses about bringing a gift to the altar. And verse 8, if you bring it grudgingly, if your heart's bad, it's not good. In other words, who's going to know what's in my heart? Two people, me and God. So it's almost like God's inviting me, hey, if your heart's not right, come back, like get that figured out. And then there's this distinction about how do I judge? Verse 12, how do I know if it's good or evil? How do I choose what other things I let into my heart? What voices am I going to listen to? Just think about that from a ritual perspective. How do I judge? Verse 14. Verse 15, the way to judge is plain, that you may know with a perfect knowledge as the daylight is from the dark night, and the Spirit of Christ is given to every man. Wherefore, I will show you the way to judge. If it invites you to do good and to persuade you to believe in Christ, you can know with perfect knowledge it is of God. But, verse 17, if it persuades you to do evil, believe it not. And then there's this reference of, for the devil does this, and he persuadeth, verse 17, no man to do good, no, not one, neither do his angels. So we're separating light from darkness. And then we get into this, know the light, and then lay hold the word. Now, there's lots of ways to read it, but what the image I want you to have of laying hold is think about Nephi with grasping the iron rod. So I'm reaching out my hand, and I'm grasping it, and then we get into these things over and over again that we've talked about earlier, these things or these words that I'm grasping. Now, what is Jesus? John refers to him as the Word. So I'm just throwing some of these thoughts at you. And then all this stuff about miracles, 27, uh, 29, 35, all these ideas of miracles where Moroni is like, they haven't ceased. Another word for miracle is sign or token. That's Those words are interchangeable in the ancient world. And so we have signs that I'm given. And then verse 36, angels appear. And the chapter begins and ends with this idea of faith, hope, and charity. Faith is Moses. Moses is, is typified as this angel that invites us out of the ocean. And then we have prophets, and there's lots of them that fit this role that say, make straight the way of the Lord, this participatory hope. A lot of times that could be Elijah. And then we have Melchizedek, the charity priest, that says, let me give you kretes, the ability to see, to draw distinctions, to see as God sees, and to have charity, agape, that's the pure love of Christ, 44, 45, it never fails, verse 47. Why? Ritually, I'm seeing things the way God has seen because I've made those covenants that have changed me, I've been purified. And then 47 and 48, I'm welcome into the presence of the Lord. And so I really do see this as Mormon's testimony of faith, hope, and charity from a ritual perspective, which we saw in Ether 12. So though Ether 12 and Moroni 7 sound like they're the same stuff, remember, Ether, that's Moroni's witness. Moroni 7 is Mormon's witness. And we can kind of miss it if we just say, oh, it's Moroni 7, it must be Moroni, but it's Mormon. 
Another thought, now I can't prove this, but I think there's something to this. Paul's doing some of the same stuff, and my take is whatever text or whatever tradition or teaching that Paul's aware of, I think is really old from way back before the Jewish apostasy. Mormon has access to this, Moroni has access to this, and so does Paul. To the critics of the Book of Mormon that say, Joseph Smith is just cribbing, he's just repackaging 1 Corinthians 13 and he's rewriting stuff, I would challenge that assertion. I would say, go back and read the Book of Mormon. Joseph is not cribbing Paul. Now, is some of Paul's ideas in the Book of Mormon? Yes, but my contention is Paul and Mormon and Moroni have access to something that we don't have. I think there's something to this. I have faith. I know there's a God. Then I have these participatory experiences where I have an answer to a prayer. I feel the Spirit. I'm participating. Then I make covenants. And then as I fulfill those and I've been on the way and I've made them, I see different. I'm a different person. Now, I'm not perfect, but, I, but in the process of doing this again and again, and as we go to the temple, I think we're refined and we cultivate charity. And to me, it ends with this, I'm right at the foot of Jesus at the end. So anyway, I love it. There's lots of ways to read Moroni 7. Let's focus a little bit on the last five verses and charity. Because if you see the procession, I have faith in God, I hope that God will save me, and then because of my hope, the natural outgrowth of believing that salvation works for you as well, that Jesus loves you and will perform miracles in your life and save you, is a desire to be more like him to love like he loves. And so we end with charity. If you have hope, the natural outgrowth of hope is charity. And charity is Jesus. It is everything that... Look at verse 45 and tell me you couldn't replace charity with Christ. It says, Charity suffereth long and is kind, envieth not and is not puffed up, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Couldn't you also say, Christ suffereth long and is kind and envieth not and is not puffed up? He never seeks his own. He's not easily provoked. He thinketh no evil. He doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but he rejoices in truth. He hopes all, he believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In other words, charity is to love like Christ loves. It's to emulate the love we receive from him. Charity is the pure love of Christ. Now, I know that word of could be interpreted as uh, several things. For example, it could be the love for Christ. It could be the love like Christ. I would suggest to you that charity is the pure love from Christ. And if we're going to emulate charity, we have to love like Christ loves me. I have to duplicate the charity he has for me. And what I love about Mormon's addition here, and you don't get this in Paul, is verse 48 unlocks the door. Where do you get charity? It's a gift. Now, notice that faith is a choice you make. Hope is a choice you make. But charity is not. Charity is not a choice you make. I'm going to be charitable. Charity is a gift you receive from God. And you receive it for doing two things he mentions in verse 48. First, you ask for it. 
You want it enough to ask for it. You pray with all the energy of your heart. And secondly, notice upon whom he bestows charity, those who are true followers of his son, Jesus Christ. So if you want charity, if you want to love like Jesus loves, if you want the ability to see people the way Jesus sees them, you ask him for that ability. You pray with all the energy of your heart, meaning you want it more than you want anything else. I want to love like God loves. I want to see people the way God sees them. You ask Heavenly Father for that ability. And then you gain it by following Jesus, by doing what Jesus did. I'm going to emulate him. I'm going to imitate him as much as I can. And by imitating his actions, I gain access to his thinking and his heart. And that's how you get charity. And when he comes, we will be like him because we will think what he thinks and feel what he feels because we have for years prayed for it and acted like him so that I could receive it. These verses are an absolute gem because not only does it talk about how much we need charity, how much we, we cherish charity, but where it comes from. And it comes from God as a gift to those who ask for it and follow his son as best they can so that they can receive it. Can you imagine how weak our excuse would be, Bryce, if we said to Mormon, Mormon, I, I couldn't get charity. It's just the world's too tough. I mean, think of the irony of these verses written by Mormon. Like, what Knowing was his the environment he's living in. Yeah, like he's literally picking up a sword every day, and he's like, you guys are pretty much lame, but I'm going to go defend you because I love you. He just loved them. And even though they were so messed up, and I think the reason why he loved them is because he had charity. Yeah. He prayed for it. And where did he get it? Where did he get that love for people he knew were going to be destroyed, and even appropriately so because of their wickedness, as we see in chapter 9? Where did he get that level of love for them? So we don't have an excuse, I guess, is what my point is. Like, we can't say, Lord, it's just too hard. I think Mormon is standing here going, guys, you can do this. Yeah. Do you want it? I mean, that's why I love that verse 48 says... You have to pray with all the energy of your heart. Do you really want to love? Because if you love like God loves, you're going to be kind and forgive and be patient. You're going to look at verse 45. You're going to suffer long. You're going to be kind. You're going to not envy. You won't be puffed up. Now, there's something pleasing to the natural man when our anger rages and revenge is in our heart. That is pleasing to the natural man. So do you really want charity? Because if you want charity, you're going to be kind and not envy and puff up. you got to let go of that natural man. That's hard. And that's so hard to do. But if you want it, if you pray for it, and if you act like the Son the best you can, that, verse 48, is the promise. That is on whom God bestows charity, the gift. And I can't escape verse 48. When I see the way he sees... The veil's thin. Like, I'm so close to Jesus. And I had a mission president say this one time to me. He said, Elder Day, you're not going to see the face of Jesus in your closet in your apartment. 
You're going to see the face of Jesus in the faces of these people that you teach the gospel to. And I'll never forget him saying that. It was like, it burned in my soul. Brilliant. That is a brilliant statement. I just see Jesus in them. I go and and talk to them and work with them. And anyway, Moroni 8, just a thought historically, in the old world, they're having the same fights. What do we do about children? Do they need to be baptized? And the two pillars anciently, about 400 AD, one of them is Augustine, and people call him like the father of Christian theology. And from Augustine, we get predestination and Calvinism and infant baptism. The other one is Pelagius, and Pelagius says things a lot that I would agree with, some that I don't. But one of the things he says is, guys, we have this thing called agency, and it's not predestined. And your agency can contribute to your goodness or your badness. Now, was infant baptism, did it come about before these guys? And I think the argument is yes. Probably around 250 AD, they're starting to baptize children. And this could be a really boring podcast if I read a bunch of the statements. So for those of you that are like, I want to read more about this, we'll put some stuff out there for you. But essentially, they're having the same fights in the old world as they're having in the new world. And the question on the table is, okay, what is the status of children? And so before we get into this conversation about infant baptism, Bryce, I just want to say I taught an online class where we did the Book of Mormon, and I had some students who were probably in their 40s or 50s, and they were converts from Catholicism. And they said to me, I don't like this chapter. And I said, why? And they said, well, because it's kind of throwing my family under the bus. My family, you know, we come from Catholicism and we're baptizing infants, and this is really difficult. And so I certainly don't have all the answers, but I love this quote by Joseph Smith. And it's quite the quote. He says, while one portion of the human race are judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. And then he he goes on, but then Joseph Smith says that he's going to judge them not according to what they don't have, but according to what they have. And so before we get into this conversation about infant baptism, Bryce, I just want to say that to our listeners out there who are like, I don't like Moroni. Like, I don't like this throwing infant baptism under the bus. I think it's one thing to say a practice is bad, but it's another thing to say, I'm not, I don't think they're saying that the people that do this are bad. I think we, we're living according to the light that we have. That's, that's, I wanted to just start out with that. Yeah. But let's be clear. Mormon says the baptism of children is a gross error. Yeah. It is solemn mockery because, verse 8, little children are whole. They are not capable of committing sin. So there's the true doctrine. Right. And... Verse 14, he that supposes that little children need baptism is in the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity, and he hath neither faith, hope, nor charity. Wherefore should be cut off from, while in the, in, in the thought, he must go down to hell. Now that's kind of what they're reacting to. I and just that's wanted really to get hard. there out there. Yeah. But rather than seeing that as a condemnation of the people who baptize children, it should be seen as a... This is how God feels about children. Yeah, do you see what I mean? Like the emphasis, and right? And so if we shift the emphasis away from those who are baptizing children and say, okay, so tell me what he's saying about children and his atoning sacrifice. And once you make that connection, 
then you can say, okay, now I get it. He is absolutely, there is no question how God and the Savior feel about children. And that's what's happening here. But what I really like about Moroni 8, Mike, is I think Mormon tells us where it came from. This is the first time, this is the only time I can find in, the New Testament doesn't make this connection. It's only the Book of Mormon that makes this connection. And as soon as I made the connection, a light went on in in, in my head. At the very end of verse 8, after condemning the baptism of children, he mentions that the law of circumcision is done away in me. Now, why would he bring up circumcision? It seems to me that, to me, he made the connection— I think that the birth of the idea that children need baptism isn't an evil satanic idea. It's just a misunderstanding of the law of circumcision, that when a child comes into the world, he needs to be marked with the Abrahamic covenant. But somewhere along the line, that got turned into he has to be saved because there's there's something broken that has to be fixed. By the way, historically, everything you're saying, and I don't think Joe Smith has access to any of this information, but historically, Origen talks about this and others of these the apologists and the later fathers of the church are having these debates, and that's kind of their idea. Their idea is, okay, we're not circumcising anymore, but what do we do with this fall of Adam stuff, and what do we do with children? And then Augustine just comes out and says, you know what, guys, they're all toast. We are all depraved. We have to have this. So it makes sense that if you don't have a fullness of the gospel, it would be a logical connection between circumcising children and baptizing children. So I don't think this is rooted in an evil tradition, which is another lesson. So one of the things I think we really ought to pull out of this is not allowing your traditions to interfere with truth. Tradition can be an enemy to truth. I love what Joseph Smith wrote once. He says, I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God, but we frequently see some of them, after suffering all they have for the work of God, will fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. They cannot stand the fire at all. How many will be able to abide a celestial law and go through and receive their exaltation? I am unable to say, as many are called, but few are chosen. I like that because it's just kind of a, don't let your traditions, don't hold so tightly on your traditions that you lose sight of what is real truth. How many times have you seen that, right? Where people say, well, I already have religion or I already have this. And Second Nephi, a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible. Yeah, 29. Second Nephi, 29. A Bible, a Bible. Sometimes people are unwilling to accept truth because of a tradition. Even in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're trying to see that. We had a prophet many, many years ago try to end all of the formality and the pomp and the circumstances about missionary farewells, and yet, man, that tradition still holds true today. We just can't let go of the tradition. We struggle. Even though we were taught the truth by a prophet many years ago, we still are struggling because the tradition is so ingrained in us. Um, funny story, just a funny story. When I was a little boy and my mom would have me say prayers at night and she'd listen to my prayer, 
one night I was kneeling down. I was just a child. And one night I, I prayed and I panicked in the middle of my prayer. My mom could tell I was panicking, grasping for the phrase and the words. And all of a sudden I blurted out, blessed that the Indian chopper won't fall on us. And my mom thought that was the funniest phrase for a little child to say, blessed that the Indian chopper won't fall on us. And so she pondered that for many, many days. And then later, when another, we were saying another prayer, she heard the phrase, harm or accident fall upon us. And then she realized that her son had heard don't let the farmer's axe fall upon us. What they were saying over and over and over again, what had become the tradition in our prayers was to just say these common phrases over and over and over again, blessed that the farmer's axe, blessed that no harm or accident will befall, fall upon us. And a little boy heard that so many times that it became blessed that the farmer's axe won't fall upon us. And then in a panic, I forgot what to say, and I blurted out, blessed that the Indian chopper won't fall on us. I was wondering where you're going with this, and now I get it. And my mom realized that maybe their traditions, maybe the traditional comments in their prayers, the traditional phrases that we utter have lost truth. And we just say them because it's tradition, like bless this food that it will. I know what you're all thinking. Has that become a tradition? And we see it with Christianity flowing into an apostasy. We see truth become overshadowed by tradition. That's what Jesus fought in the New Testament with the law of Moses, where tradition trumped truth. By the way, look at verse 7. Yeah. I mean, you don't read verse 7 in the synods or councils of ancient Christianity. Verse 7 is right there. When I got this letter from you, I inquired of the Lord. I mean, there it is, right? Yeah. So one of the things I think, I like the idea that he connects circumcision with child baptism, because for me, that's the logical connection. I believe that's where the idea of baptizing children was born, was that God had instituted a truth in the law of circumcision, and that truth got lost and became a tradition, and the tradition dominated and we lost truth. Beyond just his message about infant baptism, I think Mormon is waving his arms and saying, be careful and don't let traditions trump truth. Yeah, that's a good message. <laughs> There's so much historical stuff, but one of the things you read in the writings of these letters back and forth, these guys arguing about this is, what do we do with all the rules of catechism, instruction? If we're baptizing them when they're born, and, and then they have this conversation, do we baptize them at day one? Do we baptize them at day eight? And a lot of them are saying, well, we got to wait eight days. And then other guys write back and say, well, if we wait eight days, if the baby dies then they're damned. And Augustine's like, yep, they're damned. And there's this big struggle and this big debate. And it's all coming out of these ideas. And so by the fourth and fifth century, and then you get to the Council of Orange, they kind of fade away from even instruction. Like, what do we do with pre-baptismal instruction when you're being baptized right out of the womb? And so we don't know when it starts, but it happens, and it's in full bore by the time we get to Joseph Smith. And so I'm grateful this is in here, but I really like the macro lesson. What traditions are keeping me away from verse 7? 
And how can I go to right away to verse seven? I, I remember Joseph Feely McConkie saying this one time where he said, a lot of questions that we have about the gospel can be answered by a direct line. You take whatever the question is, you circle it, and you draw a line right into the sacred grove. Because out of the sacred grove, there's so much truth. Joseph had so many answers. And I think the invitation is for us to have our own sacred grove experience. We've got to go to the Lord and we've got to get answers. And a lot of times the answers have been given through prophets. And so if they've been given through prophets, we're good to go. But I really like that as a macro lesson on tradition and where it came from. And I've said this once, I'll say it again. There's no way Joseph Smith could write verse eight. Like the law of circumcision is done away with me. That, that phrase is the beginning of this problem historically. And so I'm kind of with uh, Mormon and Moroni on this, right? Look at verse 12. Little children are alive in Christ. In the middle of verse 16, behold, I speak with boldness. Sometimes that's hard, but then he says in verse 17, I'm filled with charity and all children are like unto me, meaning unto God. Little children cannot repent, verse 19. So it's a beautiful message. Yeah, because when I read these harsh words, you've got to see God's love for children. And then you've got to have hope and say, I am his child. I am his child. If this is how God feels about children, I am his child and have hope and connect all these chapters together that you have a part in his heart and that you should have hope. And if you have hope, you won't be in despair. And if you have hope and you're not in despair, you're going to want to act like he acts and feel what he feels and love like he loves. And you're going to ask Heavenly Father for charity. And then we figure things out. And with that, we're going to close. We have one more, Moroni 10, and then we're finished with the Book of Mormon. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.